Shalom. This is uh, November 16th, 2008. We're looking at uh, Galatians Lesson 6, which, foc- which focuses on Acts chapter 2, ver- uh, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 15, and chapter 21. Uh, we have a long lesson. We have a lot of things to get into. Uh, we'll get into it here shortly. One thing I do want to uh, remind people of, because of the online nature of this uh, class, if you have questions, and certainly from a long lesson like this, I, ex- I expect that we would have uh, a lot of questions, uh, please uh, um, send us uh, an email and uh, make an attempt to answer your question in a public way. Uh, if you go to uh, the Galatians uh, um, class page online at bereansonline.org, you can see that some of the questions that have already been uh, sent, and uh, we've make, made an attempt to try and answer uh those kinds of uh, things that come up uh, simply because we don't have an opportunity in class to, uh, uh, for people to ask questions and, and, and hear a common response or a response that might affect everyone. Uh, let's get into uh, our study this morning and let's, uh, let's thank God for the opportunity of studying His Word. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with His commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Lord our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people Israel. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has selected us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and safeguard you. May the Lord illuminate his countenance for you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance to you and establish peace for you. Amen. Uh, This is uh, lesson six. As we said, we are... uh, Still working on trying to define all the terms, uh, get the background, the historical background, the uh, our understanding of uh, the uh, the the culture and uh, the the religious practice of the first century uh, prior to opening up the book of Galatians. We have certainly spent, especially if we come from a traditional Christian background, we have sp- certainly spent uh, a lot of time understanding Galatians from uh, what I feel is the wrong perspective. Uh, so spending some time in this preparation of our of our study, uh, I hope will be uh, beneficial to us as we begin to open the book up. Uh, God willing, we'll do that in the next lesson, lesson seven. We'll start with chapter one of Galatians. Um, for now, though, we're focusing on the book of Acts today, uh, and uh, I hope by the time that we're finished with this long lesson, that we will have a greater understanding uh, that the book of Acts provides us great uh, a great. Uh, uh, reference into the controversy uh, that we find ourselves uh, that Paul is trying to answer in the, in the epistle to the Galatians. This is from Acts chapter 10, verse 13. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, eat, kill and eat. But Peter said, no, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up to heaven again. That's Acts 10, 13 through 16. 
Acts 10.25 As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for, Jew- for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go of another nation... Uh, or to go to one of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Acts 10, 25 through, uh, through 28. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when, they had much dis- when there had been much dispute, this is Acts 15, when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their heart by faith. Now therefore, why do do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? And that's from Acts 15, verses 6 through um, 10. We see from these passages, uh, from a, from a traditional classical Christian view, is uh, it's very clear, uh, you know, God has uh, uh, introduced a, a new religion, uh, a religion of, of uh, contest, a contest between the old religion, the religion of the uh, uh, of the Old Testament, and the, the new religion, the religion of the New Testament. We're going to see, of course, how how uh, how faulty and how biased that view is. Here's some questions for our study today. In the is the purpose is the purpose uh, for the book of Acts, or excuse me, is the purpose of Acts 10 to deliver the definitive voice from heaven, the abolishment of the food laws from Leviticus 11? In Acts 10, why does the whole speaking in tongues thing occur again, as it did in Acts 2? What is God trying to tell us? Are Acts 2 and Acts 10 related because of the beginning of a new body, an example, the church, or is it something else, or something else going on here? What was the significance of Pentecost? And more importantly, what is the overall theme of Acts? And lastly, are the rules laid out for Gentiles in Acts 15 and Acts 21 a variation of the Noahide laws, that is the laws given to Noah, spoken of in the Talmud? And hopefully we'll be able to answer some of these questions or at least uh, have have, have a better view of how important these questions are by the time we're finished with today's lesson. Uh, Start with this. Acts, first of all, is Acts is not a transitional book. Classical Christian theology has assigned the book of Acts to the category of transitional for the reason uh, that that when you read it, although there's there's some very important things in in in, uh, guidelines, for instance, uh, organization of uh, of an assembly or 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 a church, uh, having elders and deacons, etc. The message going to the Gentiles, uh, the fact that uh, the Jews persecuted Paul, uh, those kinds of things are make the book of Acts uh, certainly beneficial from a classical Christian uh, perspective, but they treat the book as transitional because especially if you are careful to read, careful to read uh, from Acts 1 all the way through the end, Acts 28, you begin to see that if I pattern my life, if I pattern my life after those disciples within this, within this book, I'm going to have a different lifestyle than, than traditional Christianity has represented. Uh, certainly we're going to see that, that Jewish people remain Jewish uh, and do not, in fact, reject uh, their uh, Jewish origins. 
So because of that, it's given this category of transitional. Uh, th- this, is, this, is, uh, this is a misreading, uh, first of all, of the book of Acts. And secondly, it, 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 it really uh, is a uh, misstatement and a misunderstanding of the, of the source of all things. Uh, we can recognize uh, by looking at just natural history, the devolution, the de-evolving of thinking of man uh, given a period of time. And uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful example of if you had a choice between uh, drinking uh, from a river uh, at thousands of, of miles from its source or drinking from the river as it just exited the snow-capped peaks, which would you choose? And of course, we'd all would choose to drink uh, from the river closest to the source. Now, why it is, uh, why it is so important uh, for those in the Protestant Reformation to discover what it was that the Antinician Fathers, that is, those, those, that group of, of church leaders prior to the, uh, the Council of Nicaea, how it is that they approached things. In other words, wanting to get back early, early in, 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 the, in, our, in our processes of thinking of, 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 uh, of Christianity because that would be more valuable. And yet, they don't want to go back to the book of Acts. Uh, because the book of Acts uh, is closer to the source. In fact, we can see the book of Acts, the vast majority of it is written, you know, decades after the, the, the uh, resurrection of Yeshua. So the book of Acts actually provides us with a great opportunity to see the life and practice, the beliefs, the, the misunderstandings, the things they did right, the things they did wrong. Uh, the book of Acts is not a transitional book. It is, in fact, a great source book for us to understand the lifestyle and the beliefs of those first followers of Yeshua. Uh, but misreading or causing Acts to be placed in another category and rejecting the clear teaching from Acts is, is something that uh, traditional Christianity is famous for. Uh, Acts, as it turns out, carries a dominant messianic theme. And we see that because Luke, uh, the, uh, the writer uh, of Acts, is actually focusing uh, from about chapter 7 on, focusing on the ministry of Paul. And in, in focusing on the ministry of Paul, the, the, uh, the uh, ambassador to the Gentiles, uh, we see that Luke actually is giving us this, is carrying through on this overall thrust. But starting right away in the be- beginning of the book, we see by the, by the commission of Yeshua to his disciples what in fact the overall thrust is. <clears throat> and the overall thrust is uh, not, uh, the classical view of course says it's the old religion, that is Jewish, and, uh, versus the new religion, that is Gentile, and the, and the moving between the two. And boy, aren't we glad we finally left the old behind, we have a new. Because of that, books like... Uh, uh, books like Galatians become a matter of law versus grace, and uh, and in fact that they have they have created a a great foundation, a rotten foundation for understanding all of the apostolic scriptures. Uh, rather, the Book of Acts has a dominant messianic theme, and the theme uh, carried out from beginning to end is a focus on the things of the final redemption. When I say the final redemption, I'm talking about Isaiah two, uh, or uh, or, or other passages in the prophets where it talks about the, f- uh, the, uh, the return, the restoration of all things when Messiah reigns in Jerusalem as king and the uh, enormous uh, drawing from the nations, Gentiles, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, uh, to worship in the God of Israel. Uh, 
the book of Acts carries this theme and recognizes that this is a, an important part of establishing uh, Messiah's reign on earth is that, all, that Gentiles would be drawn in. So the book of Acts written, uh, written by Luke is, is, uh, is a, an attempt to, and, and, and carries this theme to show that this, uh, that this Messiah, Yeshua, the one given by God is, is the Messiah and that although he did not establish his, his reign on his first, uh, um, fir- on his first, in his first revelation here, uh, but rather after his resurrection, he will return and the final redemption he will prove uh, to one and all that he is king. And uh, this, this theme, if you look at the book of Acts with this theme, uh, you begin to see that Paul is the, should be the perfect one to be in, uh, included in this, in, this, uh, in this thematic look. Uh, what we'll look at when we get next week in lesson one, uh, or, or excuse me, in lesson seven uh, from chapter one of Galatians, we're going to see this again, Paul's view of what the gospel is. Uh, we're going to start off in, chap- in, in chapter two of Acts. Uh, go to chapter 2, uh, verse 1, and uh, we'll read through verse 6. Uh, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, and uh, we, we would see Pentecost, obviously, is uh, Shavuot. It is a feast listed from, uh, uh, or the Feast of Weeks, uh, listed in, Deuteron- in, in Leviticus chapter 23. When the day of Pentecost, Pentecost is 50, so it's 50 days after uh, a, the 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 Sabbath of the uh, day of unleavened or the feast of unleavened bread. Now, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And, they were, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, when the, when, when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Now, uh, obviously, we, re- we read this, and uh, uh, immediately, uh, those who come from a classical Christian perspective, they would recognize this as, wow, this is it, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church. And the Holy Spirit's coming to, uh, to uh, as the comforter, as promised in, in, in John chapter 15, the comforter coming to establish the church, this new, this new body, this new people of God. Uh, and if you were to follow that line of thinking, uh, of course, uh, everything uh, after this point uh, becomes a blur. <laughs> uh, because, and there are some very, uh, very dramatic uh, inconsistencies in the story from that line of thinking if we follow that from now on. So let's go back and let's look at this perspective uh, a, a little bit differently. First of all, where were they? Uh, and if you read earlier in the book of Acts, you can see that they, had, they were hiding in an upper room after the ascension or after the resurrection of Yeshua. After his ascension, uh, they find, we find them pr- in prayer in an upper room. 
one of the things that's an error is in, in seeing that this actually occurred in that upper room. If you look here, it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, they were all in one, with one accord in one place. Uh, where was that one place? Could it be the upper room? Of course it could have been the upper room, uh, reading that verse alone. Uh, let's continue to read, though, because we're going to discover that there's some very big problems with this being in the upper room. Uh, and it filled the whole house, verse 2, the whole house where they were sitting. What's the whole house? Well, thinking of that as the upper room, well, that's one room of the whole house, but maybe they were sitting in an upper room of a house, and the whole house was filled with this mighty mushing, rushing wind. Um, uh should just tell you that though in the Hebrew the whole house or the house could be uh, bite uh, it is bite uh, which is the name for the temple the holy temple uh, the biggest problem comes actually when we listen to this this great multitude that hears the rushing wind and rushes they were dwelling in verse 5 dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout uh, and verse 6 when the sound occurred the multitude came together and were confused because each one heard them in speaking in his own language and then we read of course of Peter speaking to this, this multitude of people uh, if you've ever been to Jerusalem and you've walked through the old city uh, you can know without a shadow of a doubt there's no way that you can get thousands of people someplace outside any house or any upper room where everyone can hear Peter speak uh, it's just impossible, and knowing and knowing uh, the 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 uh, uh, the layout of the of the city in the first century, there's only one place where this could occur. And in fact, when you read the full account in Acts chapter two, where at the end of Acts chapter two, uh, uh, thousands are immersed, uh, and and uh, for repentance. We see that this is in, this, this has to be near the Temple Mount because the Temple Mount was the only place where you're going to find places for thousands to be immersed. Uh, the mikvaot, the ritual baths that surround the temple. If you were to go there today, you could go into uh, the Ohel, the uh, the archaeological center at the Davidson Center, and you can see uh, many of these ritual baths. They're 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 there, uh, uh, open to the air. You can walk into them. Uh, you can you can see where people would have have cleansed themselves before going up into the temple. This this is the perfect uh, the perfect place for what we are seeing in in Acts chapter two. But more imp- or as important of all of that is the history behind this occurrence. You see, there's a lot of people that don't know that what happened on that Shavuot, that day of Pentecost, was was part of a tradition an understanding of what occurred at Sinai. And the Talmud records some of this as it, as it su- supposedly occurred at Sinai. And whether it is true or false of what had occurred like this, the point here is that this is part of the understanding of the Jewish people. So that when they saw and heard these things, it confirmed uh, what was happening on the basis of their own culture and their own traditions. Uh, as it, and as we're going to see, this this is not in a, in a vacuum. That it happens on this day of Pentecost, Shavuot, for a reason. Shavuot was the anniversary uh, of uh, after the first Passover, coming out of Egypt. It was the anniversary of Israel arriving at Sinai and three days later receiving the Torah from God by His servant Moses. 
So Shavuot is a giving of the Torah, a giving of the law. This is from uh, the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, Shabbat 88b. Every single word that went forth from the omnipotent was split up into 70 languages. 70, by the way, is, uh, is the number assigned to all of the nations. If you count from Genesis, uh, if you count uh, all of the peoples listed in Genesis, there are 70, uh, 70 nations for, for all the world is, what, is, what, is where that traditional understanding comes. Uh, every single word that went forth from the uh, omnipotent was split up into 70 languages. The school of Rabbi Ishmael taught, and like a hammer that breaketh the rocks in pieces, just as a hammer is divided into many sparks, so every single word that went forth from the Holy One, blessed is he, was split up into 70 languages. And, and, and we read in, in, uh, in Exodus how the people saw the thunderings. They saw, they saw the voice of God. They saw the voice of God is what it says literally in the Hebrew. They saw the voice. And as they saw the voice, uh, this uh, in the Talmud describes it as sparks. Uh, sparks in 70 different languages. Uh, further down in uh, Shabbat 88b says, uh, Rabbi Haniel uh, ben Papa said, what is, meant, what is meant by here, for I will speak princely things? Why are the words of the Torah compared to a prince? To tell you, just as a prince has power of life and death, so have the words of the Torah potentialities of life and death. Thus, Rabbi said, to those who go to the right hand, thereof is a medicine of life. To those who go to the left hand, there is an, a deadly poison. Another interpretation, and this is, this is the reason for reading this, another interpretation, princely, denotes that on every word that went forth from the mouth of the Holy One, blessed is he, two crowns were set. And this tradition, this is what the tradition, uh, this is what the traditional uh, recognition of what happened on that day, was that when God spoke the words that we would see the ten words, when God spoke, the, or the ten commandments, when God spoke them, they were split into 70 languages and they went as sparks to the camp through all the camp and they rested above each Israelite's head in the shape as a flame in the shape of a crown uh, 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 now reading back uh, where we see in Acts chapter 2 on this same on the anniversary of this day they're all in one accord uh, and I would say in the temple Suddenly there's a sound from heaven, a mighty rushing wind. That's what we see in, in Exodus uh, chapter 19 and 20. And it filled the whole house, the whole temple where they, were seating, uh, where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues of fire. Divided, makes the point. Not just tongues of fire, divided tongues of fire that sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and then speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Uh, everyone hears them speaking in their own language. What does this mean? How does this compare to this tradition? We can recognize that this tradition, whether it's true or not, provides a cultural background for this true occurrence in Acts chapter 2. What are the people to think? What are the people to think? What did the disciples think? Go back to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And here it says, But you shall receive power. Yeshua is speaking to disciples. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. We can see here, Yeshua is speaking. Yeshua is speaking to uh, his, his, uh, his followers and, and showing them this, uh, this connection here. 
that that it's not just a a a, a faith for them to to teach in Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth, this connection here that Gentiles are somehow to be included. Now, did the disciples immediately understand that? Uh, we, could, we could say fairly conclusively that no, they did not. Uh, they, they thought that this was only for Jews, or maybe Samaritans, as we see uh, later on in the book of Acts. Uh, but it doesn't get till chapter 10 that we understand that they understand that it actually includes Gentiles. They didn't get the point. They didn't get the picture, the full picture. One thing that's very interesting, uh, these images from the ancient tradition uh, are there, uh, but those who are there listening and those who are uh, being immersed are all considered Jews, but may that, they may, may not all be uh, actually Jewish by birth. Uh, we see that in verse 10, Acts chapter 2, verse 10, that a number of these are actually Gentiles. Who, uh, who are proselytes, who have gone through ritual conversion to Judaism. So there's, right away, we see this Shavuot experience is, is, includes Gentiles, even though they weren't necessarily recognized by the culture of the day as Gentiles. But it includes Gentiles. The 70 languages, the, the, uh, the allusion, the speaking of many languages, the allusion to the 70 languages in, in the, uh, in the in- images from the ancient tradition, uh, this inclusion of 70 languages, again, this, it's now about expanding it's now about expanding. This is, this, is, this is Hashem's announcement of something uh, important, not something new. This is not a new body uh, called, uh, called by God uh, where he has, he has a, a new people, but rather this is something uh, that is, has always been prophesied. Uh, going back to uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God promised Abraham that through him and in him, that the uh, that the nations would be blessed. This is the march for the final redemption. It had begun. Uh, uh, Messiah had come. He had he had died. He had he had he had been resurrected. Uh, he had ascended. And now the march to the final redemption, when he set up sets up his kingdom, has had had begun. That kingdom must include Gentiles. If we are to read the prophets correctly, if we are to assume that God's promise to Abraham is true, which we do. Uh, and so we see that this Shavuot experience is pointing to Gentile inclusion. It's part of it. Uh, when we look at Acts chapter 10 and verse 15, it's clear that the believers didn't get it at this point. It's fairly conclusive. They, they, they weren't making that leap. One of the reasons why they weren't making that leap is because they uh, had been so indoctrinated by the 18 measures and by the, by the notion that Gentiles had no part in the world to come unless they became Jews. And as we're going to see as we get into this, that, that, that the book of Acts teaches conclusively that that was, uh, that was an incorrect view, but it took a while for the first disciples to understand that because they had been so indoctrinated by the 18 measures and by, by ritual conversion as a means for Gentiles uh, to uh, um, gain access to the world to come, uh, to be a part of the covenant community, uh, they couldn't see it. It was beyond their recognition. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. Uh, and we're going to see in Acts chapter 10 uh, precisely how the 18 measures had infected. Now, Acts chapter 10 takes place probably sometime about close to 10 years after uh, after the... Uh, um, well, not quite 10 years after... Uh, the resurrection, but it's a number of years after the resurrection, and uh, Peter is a very pious man. 
Uh, and, and in this, uh, we're going to see that the 18 measures are, are, are directly uh, affecting Peter's view of the world, Peter's view of his mission, of Peter's view of, of the commission that Yeshua had given all of the disciples in Acts 1.8 to the ends of the earth, to all the Gentiles as well. Go to Acts chapter 10, verse 1, and we'll start reading. We'll read down through verse 35. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision of an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up, before the, come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel spoke to him and had spoke to him, had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Let's pause for a moment. Here in, in, uh, in Caesarea, in Acts 10.1, we read about a man, a Gentile, a Gentile of the Italian regiment. Here is a Roman man who's devout and one who feared God and all his household. It does not call him a proselyte. In fact, he couldn't have been a proselyte. Uh, so here he is, he's in this, uh, he's in this in-between land where he's neither Jew nor is he considered fully Gentile uh, of the culture of the day. He's somewhere in this middle, this God-fearer. Uh, uh, and as, as this person who worshipped the one true God but was not considered Jewish, uh, it's interesting how God hears his prayer. Look at it, he says he, he's in the ninth hour he's praying. He's in the ninth hour. He prayed to God always. And about the ninth hour, the, uh, he saw a, a vision of an angel. Uh, the ninth hour would be three in the afternoon, which is the time of the Micha prayer. So he's a very devout man. He's following, he's following not only uh, worshiping the God of Israel, he's following some of the traditions of uh, Judaism in this time. He gives alms. He, God recognizes that he gives alms. He says, your prayers and your alms have come up as a memorial before God. Interesting. Uh, he doesn't say uh, that uh, you know your faith or whatever else. Although we would see that certainly faith was uh, was the foundation for all these prayers and alms. But it's interesting. He says your alms and your and your prayers to come up as a memorial. Now let's let's continue. Verse nine. The next day, as they speaking of the men that he sent went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the household to housetop to pray about the sixth hour. So this would have been about noon. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descended to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, eat, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him, the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, when, now while Peter won, wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, men who had been, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry of Simon's house, for Simon's house, and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing. 
for I have sent them. Then Peter went down from uh, went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he who you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, is a just man who fears God and has a great reputation among all, all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and they had called and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him and saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. And he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go... Uh, to go to one of another nation but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean therefore I came without objections as soon as I was sent for I asked I asked there then for what reason have you sent for me so Cornelius said four days ago I was fasting until this hour and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house and behold a man stood before me in bright clothing and said Cornelius uh, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered in the sight of, of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. Now when he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and now you have, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. And Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation who fears him and works righteousness in, ex, is accepted by him. Now, what are we to get from this passage? Uh, first of all, the classical view is uh, this uh, idea that this is the annulling of Leviticus chapter 11 commandments regarding food. Um, uh, is that what Peter thought? Of course not. Peter here is uh, recognizing, uh, and, and he tells us exactly what it was uh, that he got out of it. Um, and what God actually said. What did God say? He said, Arise and kill and eat. Excuse me, the voice say. Rise, kill and eat. And what was Peter's response? Not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. In verse 14. In verse 15, the voice says, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times. The object was taken up in heaven. Did Peter ever kill and eat? No. It doesn't say he kill and ate at all. Did God, does God ever command somebody to do something that, that, that is contrary to his revealed will? Yes. Do you not remember Genesis chapter 22? Abraham, take up your son, your only son, whom you love, and take him to the place that I will show you, and offer him up there as a burnt offering. What did, what did Abraham do? He went out to obey God, and what occurred? Uh, his hand was stayed and a substitute was found. Uh, in Ezekiel uh, chapter 4, verses uh, 12 through 15, we read of another thing very similar to Peter's vision here. Ezekiel chapter 4, uh, verse 12 says, And you shall eat it, speaking of bread, you shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. Then the Lord said, So shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I will drive them. So I said, Ah, Lord God, indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has 
abominable flesh ever come into my mouth, he said to me, See, I'm giving you cow dung instead of human waste, and you shall prepare your bread over it. Uh, God, God says, Eat meat cooked bread, excuse me, eat bread cooked over human waste. This would render it unclean. Uh, human waste in the Torah so, tells us that it actually does make something unclean, un- inedible. Bread is otherwise edible, but if it's cooked or baked over human waste, it would be inedible. If it was in contact with human waste, it would be inedible. It would not be fuel. It would defile. Uh, Defile is a very important word we're going to see here in a second again. It would defile. Uh, When when Ezekiel, God's wanting to have a, a object lesson, when Ezekiel protests and says, Lord, I've never eaten anything from my youth that was, that was not clean uh, or not def- uh, undefiled, uh, God relents and says, still, okay, cook it over cow dung. Instead of human waste, you should prepare your bread. In other words, the point's being made. Uh, you don't have to become, uh, you don't have to eat something defiled in order to make the point. And that's the same thing with Peter. Uh, God uh, or the voice rather commanded him to kill and eat. Uh, did Peter kill and eat? No, he did not. What is Peter's view of what this vision all means? And 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 he tells us uh, Peter's own view. He you know he's wondering what does this mean? And and uh, as he enters Cornelius' house, he gets it. He understands what the point was. Us that he starts off. Um, uh, um, he starts off by recognizing. Uh, that he's going into this house of Cornelius in direct contradiction to the 18 measures. Here we see the 18 measures being dealt with. The 18 measures are right here, found in Acts chapter chapter 10, uh, where in verse 28, uh, Peter says, he said, do you, know, do you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation? And here he tells us now what the vision means. And this is, this is unequivocal, and he ch- says it again in chapter 11 of, of Acts. Anyone who will tell you that Acts chapter 10 is a, is a annulling or a renouncing of the words of God spoken by his servant Moses in Leviticus chapter 11 has not studied God's word and is speaking an untruth. Because Peter's own view is this, in verse 28, But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Common or unclean. When I see the word common, and when I read in the Greek the word koinos, I know that we're talking about the 18 measures. God has shown him that no one should be common or unclean. Where in the Torah does it ever say that Gentiles are common? Well, this is a word that is uh, invented and and used uh, for other reasons by the 18 measures themselves. Or that a Gentile is unclean. It does not say that. What we have is we have a tradition. We have a group of laws and substrata of laws and rules in the 18 measures that have separated between Jew and Gentile in a way that God never intended. Uh, we, we can see uh, right, right up in verse 15, Acts chapter 10, verse 15, what God has cleansed you must not call common. Interesting. It doesn't say uh, what God has cleansed you must not call unclean. That's a totally different word. Uh, that is akathartos, and in fact, akathartos is never used. Uh, in, in, is is always used for the word unclean. When we go back to the Septuagint and we look at the, the the instructions given to us in Leviticus chapter 11 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the word is akathartos when it talks about unclean meat. 
Peter in chapter four, uh, chapter 10 of Acts verse 14 says, no, Not so, Lord, I have never eaten anything uncommon or unclean. He says, I've never eaten meat that's unclean. That's akathartos. But he's also saying, I've never eaten anything that was normally permissible. Remember the bread being cooked over dung? Uh, uh, human waste in, in Ezekiel. That's, that would be something that would be uh, along those lines. Common. In other words, it's normally permissible, but because of other conditions, is not permissible. And in this case, common, koinos, is actually a, something that was restricted because of the 18 measures. So I would, I've never eaten anything. Now, the 18 measures, uh, this issue of common, basically they took the rules, the, the Torah instructions about eating offerings, bread and meat offerings, and who could or couldn't eat, and whether they had to be in a state of ritual purity, or whether they had to be, in other words, tahor. They took those rules and they applied them to, to the domain outside the temple for everyone. Uh, those similar and similar rules and instructions. That's what the 18 measures did. It took the laws of Torah and, and, and who, or co- who could or couldn't eat of the, of the, uh, of the priestly uh, foods and the offerings and it applied it outside as well. So the common, something normally permitted but uh, because of some other uh, condition uh, couldn't be eaten. That's what Peter's talking about. He's talking about the 18 measures common or unclean. What God comes back and says, the voice rather comes back and says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. Koinos. This is the 18 measures. This is dealing directly with the 18 measures. Um, go to Mark chapter 7. If you go to Mark chapter 7 verse 2, we can see this played out here as well. Uh, this, is a, this is another place that people love to go to and try and point out that, the Levit- uh, that, that see you can have a ham sandwich. <laughs> Uh, in, in, in Mark chapter 7 verse 2 uh, the debate here has nothing to do with food uh, or excuse me has nothing to do with meat it has to do with uh, bread uh, they'll go to Matthew as well uh, it has to do with bread now, now this is chapter 7 of Mark verse 2 now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled hands that is unwashed hands they found fault for Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way holding the tradition of the elders this washing your hands in a special way is something that comes up as a as a and it's related directly to the 18 measures uh, is there's certain superstitions that also were involved in this but it's it's safe to say the washing of your hands in a special way the lifting up of the hands the uh, as it's called today the lifting up of the hands clean hands having been washed in a certain way here he says your disciples they saw some of his disciples eat with defiled that's the word konos, koinos that's that same word common hands in other words if you ate bread and the, and the Talmud tells us a man who eats bread with unwashed hands is 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 like is like uh, it, it's like um, it's like prostitution. It's like giving himself over to a prostitute. A man who would eat bread with, un, with, with unwashed hands. Koinos, common hands. Uh, no, this is not about eating meat uh, that is forbidden from uh, Leviticus chapter 11. And when one focuses, as valid as a point that is, uh, it, it's, not, it's, not, it's not directly related to our study. As valid as a point it is to understand Acts 10 is not about abolishing Leviticus chapter 11. Uh, we will miss the point if we don't understand what it is about. What it is about is the abolishment, the rejecting of the 18 measures by those within uh, the way. The sect of Judaism called the way. The followers of Yeshua. It's the rejecting of the 18 measures. This, years after the resurrection, it's still a part of their life, it's still a part of their thinking, and now, by a voice from heaven, 
it's being turned away. They're saying, no, this, this, is not, this is not what we're supposed to do. That somehow I can go into the home of a Gentile. I mean, imagine uh, not wanting to go into the home of a pious man like Cornelius simply because of the 18 measures. Peter is a pious man. He knows, he knows that these traditions are traditions and yet he can't distinguish between them and the very words of God. God himself has to come and tell him, don't call any man common or unclean. Go to Acts chapter 10 now, uh, verse, um, um, verse 44, and we'll read through verse 47. What's it, what, what is it with all the, the tongues thing? Why do we see the tongues again here as we did in Acts chapter 2? While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles as as also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized, immersed, who have received the Holy Spirit just as, as we have? What's going on here? This group that is from the circumcision, it says, in other words, they're people who are still holding the idea that the only hope for you, uh, the only hope for those uh, um, uh, Gentiles, yeah, to have a part in the world to come was to become Jews. They, they believed that somehow you had to go through ritual conversion, that is, circumcision, and the process of circumcision, the shorthand of circumcision, uh, this process is the shorthand is called circumcision for the process of ritual conversion, um, that the only hope for the, the Gentile is in the, in, the, in the world to come is to go through this process. That's the group. They're saying, what's going on here? We pe- hear people speaking in tongues. They received the Holy Spirit in the same way we have. What, what, is, what, is, what are they hearing? And they're hearing, going back to what Peter, Peter said in verse 34, in every nation, you know, God, in truth, I, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. There's no need for ritual conversion. There's no need to go through the process, uh, the, the man-made process of converting to Judaism in order to be received by God. That's Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Peter gets it. He understands. It's finally clear to him. I perceive that God shows no partiality in every nation. Whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. It's interesting, he says, whoever fears him and works righteousness. What is that? If you go back, uh, um, tzedakah, charity, that's exactly the same word being used at the beginning of Acts chapter 10. What is it that Cornelius was a man who feared God and prayed continually and and gave alms. That is that same word. Charity. It is tzedakah in, in the Hebrew. It's righteousness. He gave righteousness is the shorthand. Today, if you were to give uh, charity, if you're in the land of Israel to give charity, it is the giving or the giving of alms. It is actually the word tzedakah. It is to give, uh, it is to give righteousness. It is to give it. Um, so here we see this who fears him and works righteousness. This is a very thing. So he's saying, Cornelius, men like Cornelius, God-fearers are accepted by God without any other, without any other requirement, man-made requirement. Peter, it appears, gets it. And it certainly it has great impact on him. But we're going to see later on that it's still a problem. <laughs> now the word gets back, the word gets back to those in Jerusalem, the council in Jerusalem. They hear, they hear about this. Uh, and, and go to verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. 
Uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Yeah. You, you broke the 18 measures. You know, this is their definition of, of uh, their, their accusation against them. What are you trying to do to us? Look at, look at your, your, you could have been contaminated. Now you're here with us. You know, now it's spreading. You know, it's everywhere. <laughs> uh, so those are the circumcision. We see those are the circumcision are those who believe that somehow uh, that Gentiles could only be accepted as they went through ritual conversion. That's what those of the circumcision means. Uh, uh, and then verse, down to verse 18, chapter 11, uh, verse 18. Uh, Peter tells a story, of course, uh, and, and hears, and they hear that they received the Holy Spirit as evidenced by the speaking in tongues. The same thing that they saw in Acts chapter uh, 2, that God was uh, beginning the final redemption, that had the final redemption, the process of the final redemption had begun, and God was including Gentiles as promised. When they heard this in chapter, eight, uh, cha- chapter 11, verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorify God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So, uh, you'd think everybody gets it now. Okay, Gentiles are included without becoming Jews. Gentiles can be included without going through ritual conversion. Uh, and and uh, yeah, it seems like they've gotten it. It seems like they've gotten it. Uh, as we continue to read in the book of Acts, though, we find that, in fact, it's not then complete. Okay, so they understand they can go into Gentile homes or they can interact with Gentiles to a degree. Uh, When we get to the uh, chapter 2 of Galatians, we're going to see that even as late as as, uh, Galatians, they still don't quite, uh, they're still not quite sure. This is the insidiousness, the the power that the 18 measures had uh, over those in the first century. Uh, Remember the history behind the 18 measures where, where the house of Halil had a number of them murdered in order to enact the 18 measures. Uh, this, this tremendous seismic shift in Judaism to completely reject all things Gentile, including people that had been called by God to worship the one true God, had, uh, was, was still uh, affecting even those within uh, the community, uh, the believing community of the way, the followers of Yeshua. Uh, but we're going to see that ritual conversion eventually does get rejected uh, uh, completely, it appears, in Acts. Go to Acts chapter 15. In verse 1, we can see it here. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Remember, our, uh, in the very beginning of our study, we asked the question, uh, uh, do Gentiles have a part in the world to come? Remember, we also made the statement, as it's, as, as, as it's found in the Mishnah, as, as a quote from Isaiah, uh, uh, all Israel has a part in the world to come. And from that, from the, from the two, uh, concluding that the only hope for Jews was to become part of Israel. The only hope for, excuse me, the only hope for Gentiles was to become part of Israel. The only hope for Gentiles was to become Jewish. And the only way to do that was through the uh, man-made ritual of, of, uh, of uh, ritual conversion, uh, or as it was called in that day, circumcision. Um, and the custom of Moses, we're going to see how that relates as well. What's the... Uh, uh, and go down to verse 5 you can see in verse 5 Acts chapter 15 verse 5 look at this it says but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses 
What is? Do you remember the steps for circumcision or the steps for ritual conversion? Remember what the steps were? The first step, as it's outlined in the in the in the uh, in, in the Talmud, the first step was to accept uh, all of the law, both written and oral. Uh, remember the written Torah we can read. It's Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, the oral Torah is something that tradition said was handed down from Moses to Joshua and the men of the great assembly. And it was never written down until, uh, uh, traditionally, it was never understood to be written down until the second century of the Common Era uh, by um, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda the Prince compiled uh, the Mishnah. The Mishnah makes up what's called the oral the oral law. Uh, so part of the first step was accept the written and the oral law as binding upon you. The next step was to, in, before the days, in the days of the temple, to offer an offering, uh, and and to, um, and to go. To, excuse me, not to offer an offering. That would have been uh, one of the last steps. But that a commitment to offer an offering. Then it was to uh, go if a male go through uh, actual physical circumcision, and then lastly to go through immersion. Uh, and uh, coming up out of the water, as, as the Talmud says, uh, you are a Jew, uh, an Israelite indeed. Um, uh, so this ritual conversion, uh, remember, included taking the law. And that's what it's speaking of here in verse 5 of Acts chapter 15, saying it is necessary to circumcise it and command them to keep the law of Moses. But to keep the law of Moses doesn't mean uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy alone. It means all of it, the whole package, all together. And that's what it says when it says the custom of Moses, circumcised according to the custom of Moses, chapter 15, verse 1. It's speaking of that. In other words, the way that was traditionally handed to us as part of, um, as part of our um, uh, oral, uh, oral law. And we see, we see here that... Uh, um, uh, and, and the custom of... By the way, the custom of Moses points to the view that the Torah equals written plus oral. And it's, as we see, the first step of conversion. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. We're going to see here that that's not at all. That's not at all what God intended. And Paul understood that. Paul understood that early on. Remarkably early on, considering uh, what, what efforts others had to go through, what, what difficulties others had to go through to finally get it, to finally understand what God's intention was. Uh, we, and we see here Paul, who is, who is a, uh, although he's a student of Gamaliel, that is, that he's from the house of Halil, um, uh, and, and would, you would expect him to fall into that category, Paul was a Shemaiite. In, his, in many of his teachings and understanding. So when he's finally on the road to Damascus, called by Yeshua to be his, his emissary, his ambassador to the Gentiles, and he repents, we see that Paul uh, takes a totally different tack. Is, is not, not only is a Halilite in his understanding, but he recognizes that this whole issue of the 18 measures and Gentile inclusion is completely is, is, is not, is not uh, faithful to the Torah. Uh, and we see in Ephesians chapter 2 his understanding in verse 11 uh, therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision thus circumcision made in the flesh by hands that at that time you were without Messiah being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world to come Paul would recognize that yes Gentiles do have no hope in the world to come except Except, uh, except that it was being without Messiah. They were aliens from Israel, aliens from the, and, and strangers to the coming of promise, and they were called uncircumcision by the group that calls themselves circumcision, the flesh. Uh, that at that time you were without Messiah, 
they were aliens. Um, so they weren't converted to Judaism. How was it that they finally were brought near? And, and we're going to see in, in Ephesians chapter 2 that they were finally brought near uh, by the work of Messiah alone, not by ritual conversion. So this is the answer. The answer is uh, in, in Acts chapter 15. Let's go to Acts chapter 15, verse 1 through 21. The answer given um, to those who said, you, if, if you want to be saved, you have to, be, you have to go through ritual conversion. The answer is going to be uh, no. It's already been done by God. Acts chapter 15, verse 1 through 21. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Now, this is after, I'm going to pause for a moment, this is after Acts chapter 10 and 11. Peter's uh, vision and the recognition of the 18 measures no longer apply uh, to, to them. Uh, and this is probably before or just before the book of Galatians was written. So there's this dispute going on in Antioch, and this dispute in Antioch uh, basically can't be resolved. Uh, Paul and Barnabas taking the side the Gentiles shouldn't have to go through ritual conversion. So now they're being all sent to Jerusalem to settle the issue. So picking up in verse 3. So being sent on their way to the congregation, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they received by the assembly and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them, to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. When they had been when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up saying, Men and brethren, you know what a, that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. By faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which, was ne- which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Yeshua Messiah, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. They Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James uh, answering, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared, speaking of Peter, how God has at the first visited the Gentiles and take them out, take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind will seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Verse 18, Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we should write for them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has, has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city be, being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. We, here, here we see in Acts chapter 15 some very important points that we need to bring out. First of all, uh, think about uh, Peter's statement uh, in, in chapter 10, uh, 15 verse 10 where he says, Now therefore, why do you test God, putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? 
what what is that 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 yoke? Uh, what is that yoke that uh, that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? Well, uh, if you go to First John, uh, chapter five, verse three, First John, chapter five, verse three, we can see that uh, he can't be speaking of God's commandments. He just can't. Uh, if if he is, then uh, we need to reject everything that he's saying because he's 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 speaking a falsehood. If he says that it's something we couldn't bear, uh, this is something often brought up by people. See, you can't do this. Uh, uh, obeying God's commandments is something we shouldn't even try because it's impossible to keep. And because it's impossible to keep, God gave it to us and it couldn't be kept anyway. It's, it's a burden, too great for us to bear. Uh, and yet, in, in 1 John, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, uh, what does it say? Uh, go to verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Paul says the same thing in, uh, in Romans. Uh, the commandments of God are not burdensome. The commandments of God are, are, are not in heaven uh, where they can't be reached, uh, but they are near and in your mouth, according from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Uh, the commandments of God are not impossible. The commandments of God are not a joke unable to bear. What is, what is Peter speaking of? He's speaking of the 18 measures. And, and, and those things associated with the 18 measures and those things associated with ritual conversion for Gentiles. He says, why are you putting this burden that we nor uh, our fathers were able to bear? Why are you putting this burden on them? Uh, he's not talking about the Torah or, or the keeping of, of the commandments of God. Uh, verse 16 of, of Acts chapter 15, when, when James, uh, Yaakov, the, the, uh, uh, the master's brother, Yeshua's uh, half-brother, speaks... This, this is, is the key verse of all Acts chapter 15. Uh, when James speaks, there's true wisdom in this, and he quotes. And, he, and, and when he does, he quotes, and he says, after this, he quotes from Amos, it, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written in verse 16, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of man kind may seek the Lord. And then, and then he concludes, even all the Gentiles were called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Uh, what is this quote? He's quoting from Amos. And what is this? This, ta- this rebuilding the tabernacle of David. James understands that for Messiah to return, the son of David to return, that, that this fallen tabernacle of David, this ha- dynasty of David, which has now... Uh, is, is, has disappeared from the earth in man's mind. Yet, we know that Yeshua, our master, is, is, the, is, the, is the heir to the throne of David. It is, he is Messiah. And that when he returns, that, 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 that he will set up a kingdom that will cause the rest of mankind to seek the Lord. James understands that this whole thing of Gentile inclusion is, the, is, is part of the final redemption. Uh, this is something that we need to be looking for. This is, we need to be looking for Gentiles being included. The fact that Gentiles are being included, glory be, uh, the kingdom is coming. And, that, and so he understands. This is an important part of that picture. It's a very important part of that picture. Um, and, then we, and then we also see, uh, by the way, James is probably, uh, Yaakov is probably Shemaiah. And his description, uh, as, as um, uh, Hegesippus gives us, 
his description of, of James as a pious man, uh, he, uh, the fastings and the prayer, etc., it appears that James is a Shemaiah. James has now rejected not only the 18 measures, as we saw in Acts chapter 11, but now James has rejected as well the idea of ritual conversion as a necessity for Gentiles having a part in the world to come. Uh, in, in, uh, and then he gives this odd thing, uh, beginning in verse 20, where he talks about uh, what the Gentiles should, uh, not to trouble them with things turning to God, but that they should abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Uh, and, and it seems here that he's, okay, look, you don't have to be circumcised. This is what's generally taught. Uh, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't even have to keep the law. Just do these four things. Um, of course, uh, immediately I would I would ask uh, only these four. Uh, where's lying? Um, apparently, diet's important. Uh, things strangled, but uh, where's lying? How about murder? Is murder still wrong? Can they murder? Um, what what what's included in these four? Uh, it seems to be a very small list. Uh, it seems to be a very short list. These are only four laws. Instead, if you begin to study this, you see that these are not, in fact. Uh, uh, for minimum requirements. Uh, by the way, this would still be you know, salvation by works if you were looking at it that way. Uh, whether it's one law or 613, it's all the same difference. If, if, if these are the things you're supposed to, supposed to do, then these are the things you're supposed to do. No, rather, uh, James is not teaching that. James is teaching, in fact, that there's a, there is a behavior for the righteous. Those who've been called into fellowship with God in his Messiah they have, uh, they have been declared righteous by the righteousness of Messiah, and yet they have, there is still a behavior that uh, marks them, that identifies them as uh, the followers of Messiah. But in addition to that, if they're going to have fellowship with these people who are coming out of idolatry, then there's some very basic things that they need to understand. We've rejected the 18 measures. We understand that you don't have to be uh, go through ritual conversion. But coming out of idolatry, you also need to understand there are true instructions in the Torah regarding contact with, with idolatry. And for those things we need to deal with. And he gives these four broad categories. Broad categories. Uh, and then says, and the key here is, don't ever stop reading in verse 20. Read verse 21. Acts 15, verse 21. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. In other words, they're going to get the rest. Here's the broad categories. They'll get the details as they attend the synagogue on the Shabbat. As they learn uh, from the Torah and God's instructions of righteousness in the Torah, they're going to learn what they, what, how these broad categories fit. How these broad categories fit. Now, there are certain groups uh, uh, in Messianic Judaism who, who look at Acts chapter 15, verse 20, and conclude that these are so-called uh, the Noahide laws. Uh, they do this for, 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 for various reasons, and not to impugn motives. We don't, know, uh, we don't know people's motives. But the groups that do this are, would fall into the category of what I call the two peoples group. And that, that is believing that there is the church, or the, uh, the body of Messiah, some would say, and also there is the, uh, there's Israel. And the two overlap only where there's Jews within the body of Messiah, but otherwise the two don't overlap. Over, overlap. Gentiles can never 
never be considered part of Israel. Uh, that's within Messianic Judaism. Yeah, you, may, you may be a member of a congregation that, that holds to this. Uh, and it's not to be critical of, of, of those people that hold to this, these views, but this view is, is, contrary, is contrary to the very nature of, of our calling in Messiah and, and, and the uniting of Jew and Gentile. And we'll look at that here again in a moment. Uh, but these, these people that fall into this two peoples group, as I call them, often try, try to make these four laws into the Noahide laws. Okay, Gentiles, you want to come into our congregation, that's fine. You need to keep the Noahide laws, the so-called seven laws given to Noah. Uh, uh, but one thing that's missing in all of that, they draw from these four laws, the, set, the Noahide laws. There's actually seven in these, as they read this. Um, one thing they draw from uh, that they don't recognize is that the Noahide laws, as they're defined in the Talmud, actually are, an, it's anachronistic to date them uh, in Acts chapter 15. Uh, in fact, the Talmud uh, is the first reference to the Noahide laws. Uh, actually, this Tosefta, which would be after the Mishnah was written, before the full comp- compilation of the Talmud. Uh, so sometime after the year 200, do we first read of Noahide laws being defined. Uh, they're not found in the Mishnah at all. You will find no reference to the Noahide laws in the Mishnah, which would be 200 of the Common Era. Uh, so this is anachronistic. It's trying to take something that's commonly understood in Judaism today, in Judaism after the s- second century, and project it back into the Judaism of the first uh, of the first century, and that is anachronistic. Uh, the Noahide laws. It could be very clearly understood that the Noahide laws were developed as a man-made recognition, a man-made way to have righteous Gentiles that don't have to be Jews, that don't have anything to do with Jews. Uh, the so-called God-fearers of the first century. Uh, modern uh, Judaism says the God-fearers of the first century were people who kept the Noahide laws. Uh, if you'll read, um, if you'll read um, <laughs> what, uh, uh, what Cornelius, uh, Cornelius' piety, you'll see here that, uh, in fact, it wasn't the Noahide laws at all. Uh, he was he was living the lifestyle of an Israelite. Uh, he was uh, he was a worshiper. Most importantly, he was a worshiper of the one true God. There is no textual evidence for the Noahide laws prior to the time of the Tosefta, which would be in the after 200, actually the third century of the Common Era. Instead, what I'd like to do is compare. And you had a chart. You, you filled out on page 65 of your workbook. The Noahide uh, the the so-called Noahide laws. Uh, are, are not in view here, but rather these same four broad categories of instructions that God gives here uh, through James uh, are in fact carried out, they're, they're repeated again in Acts chapter 15 verse 28, and then they're repeated again in Acts chapter 20, uh, Acts chapter 21. Um, the chart on page 65 compares these to Ezekiel chapter 33 verses 25 through 26, something lost on a lot of people who claim these to be the Noahide laws, where these come from. And uh, in your chart that you filled out, you can see in Acts chapter 15 verse 20, things polluted by idol is the first thing prohibited. In Acts chapter 15 verse 20 and 29, it's called things offered to idols. So similar, things polluted by idols, things offered to idols. Uh, Acts chapter 21 verse 25, it's things offered to idols. Uh, uh, And then... uh, the second thing prohibited is in Acts 15.20, sexual immorality. Same thing in Acts 15.28, same thing in Acts 21.25. And then the third thing prohibited is things strangled. And then we see in Acts 15, again, things strangled. Acts 21, things, strang- 
strangled. And then Acts 15.20, the fourth thing prohibited is blood. Acts 15.28, it's from blood. Acts 21.25, it's from blood. Now if you would, go, uh, go to um, Ezekiel chapter uh, 33, verse 23 through 26, and let's read there. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, they who inhabit those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one, and he inherited the land. But we are many. The land has been given to us as a possession. Verse 25, Therefore say to them, Thus is the Lord God. You eat meat with blood. You lift up your eyes towards idols and shed blood. You, should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword. You commit abominations and defile one another's wives. Should you then possess the land? Now, in this chart that I gave you on page 65 of your workbook, I asked you to fit, fit these into the same categories of what's prohibited. From things polluted by idols, we reread in, Acts, in, in Ezekiel 33, verse 25, you lift up your eyes towards your idols. In sexual immorality, item number two in, in Acts 15.20, we read in Ezekiel 33, you defile one another's wives. In what's prohibited, item number three in Acts 15.20, things strangled. And in Ezekiel 33, you eat meat with blood. That's the, if you read from Leviticus, the purpose for uh, not strangling was that, it, that, it, that the blood remains in the meat. And then verse, uh, Acts 15.20 and the fourth thing prohibited is from blood or from or blood. And Ezekiel thirty three shed blood. This is murder. This is this is this is its purpose. And he and he goes on to call it relying on your sword. Uh, you commit abominations, that's the same thing as sexual immorality. These four things that James prohibits are the same four things that God is dealing with with Israel and drives them from the land. Who is Ezekiel thirty three addressed to? It's not addressed to Gentiles and the so-called Noahide laws. It's addressed to Jews, to Israelites. It's the failures of Israel. They're being driven from the land. These instructions in Acts chapter 15, verse 20, and again repeated in Acts 15, 28, and 29, and repeated again in Acts chapter uh, 21, verse 25, these instructions for Gentiles coming to faith are broad categories are summary instructions. They're all together. There's instructions all together. And again, going back to verse 21 of Acts 15, what are we, what are we reading in Acts 15? What, are, what is it that, that Gentiles are going to be doing as they come to faith? Uh, what is it that they're going to be doing? At, Moses is taught in the synagogue on every Shabbat. That will be sufficient. They will learn how to apply the details of righteous living. Listen to what it says in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those, day, ten, ten, those days ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. To my Jewish brothers who are alarmed at the... Uh, number of Gentiles coming into Messianic congregations that they will somehow cease to have a cultural uh, be recognized culturally uh, that they will cease to be a people as Jewish people as they're seen as Jewish people let me just tell you that it's not that way at all ten men from every language shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man saying let us go with you we have heard that God is with you 
these Gentiles are coming because they see that God is with you. They should be acknowledged and recognized as Peter did, that in every nation there are those, from every nation there are those that uh, trust in Messiah, that are uh, that work and, and, and who, who are righteous and recognize that there's only one hope and it's found in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. There's only one hope and it is to be attached to Israel. Gentiles have no part in the world to come apart from Israel. Salvation is of the Jews, as Yeshua says. Go to Romans chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? What is the profit of circumcision that is, that is to be Jewish? Much, in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. We recognize that it's only, uh, it's only through uh, being attached to the people of God that Gentiles have any hope. Um, and, and we're going to look at, at later on in our study in Romans chapter 11 the idea of being grafted into the olive tree, being grafted into the people of God. And it is not by ritual conversion. It is not by, it's not by adhering to a set of man-made uh, restrictions or conditions uh, such as the 18 measures. It is not by, uh, it is not by uh, affirmation of a people or a group that includes us by, by, by voice or by vote. It is by the very, the very work of Messiah and Him alone. Go to Acts chapter 21 now, verse 18. It was for this belief. It was for this conviction that Paul was persecuted. It was for this that Paul went to prison and went to Rome in chains. The chains of Messiah were the chains that Gentile inclusion put upon him. The chains that he suffered, the beatings that he suffered, was because he wanted and he believed that the calling of God was that Gentiles should be included. Not by ritual conversion, not by man-made laws, but by the work of Messiah alone. Acts chapter 21, verse 18 through 21. This is, uh, Paul has returned to, uh, to Jerusalem. He's gone probably to celebrate Shavuot, um, Pentecost. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail, those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said, See, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews, and by the way, in the Greek, that would be thousands, ten thousands, excuse me, ten thousands, in other words, at least twenty thousand or great, of Jews, there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law, zealous for the Torah. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. This is a false accusation of, of Paul. A false accus accusation. He's being accused not only of not, not calling Gentiles into a, into, a, into a righteous lifestyle, but Jews themselves. Uh, abandon it. Ah, you've been, you know, no longer the law. We're under grace. He was, he was misquoted then as he is misquoted now. You know, I, I, would, I would challenge anyone who, who claims Paul teaches the abolishment of the law. I would challenge them to be very careful for they accuse him falsely as those who spoke against him 
as we read of in the book of Acts. They accuse him falsely. So what's the what's this uh, what's the resolution for this false accusation? Here here uh, here we read that uh, as we continue to read, James uh, has this idea. Hey, here's this idea. What what I'd like you to do is is take these other men who have made a vow, uh, a, a Nazarite vow, as we read uh, as we read in, in Numbers chapter six. They've made a Nazarite vow, and they're going to complete their vow. Now to complete the Nazarite vow, if you did your study, if you looked up in Numbers chapter six, one through five, and then verses thirteen through eighteen, you saw that that the, the completion of a Nazarite vow requires a temple offering. An offering in the temple of, of, uh, of animals. It also requires a, a cutting of the hair, and the hair that was cut uh, is then offered on the altar as well as a form of offering. And uh, and that's the only way that Nazarite vow can be completed. Now, what we what we may not read immediately within this context is pa- is that uh, that um, Paul has also taken a Nazarite vow in chapter 18 of Acts. But this the resolution for this false accusation. Is is that uh, is is that um, uh, or the resolution would be that Paul would would actually go into the temple and and perform uh, perform uh, uh, this number six uh, requirement for the completion of a vow and that would prove that he was not teaching as those who were accused he was teaching and and here's here's a very important point the the Torah is not six individual six hundred thirteen individual commandments the Torah is not commandments uh, as such the Torah is commandment. Paul tells Timothy, the commandment. It is, it is all or nothing. We're going to see in Galatians, it's all or nothing. Either you do, you do recognize that it's, that it's God's revealed righteousness, or it's not. Uh, so a Paul going in giving an offering is like a, is like a, is like a big statement. Uh, no, Paul is faithful. Paul has not abandoned the Torah. That Paul lives righteously according to the revealed righteousness of God. As he says in Acts, in Acts chapter 28, he has not abandoned, uh, he has not abandoned it at all. He has not believed it to be no longer of value, uh, as he's falsely accused. As Romans teaches us clearly that he is falsely accused. Paul sa- says that the law is beneficial. Uh, he tells Timothy that it is instruction in righteousness. Uh, we we need to understand that Paul is is his false accusation that his res- resolution is to offer an offering. Now that comes as a shock to some people, but if you go back and read in Numbers chapter six, verse one through five, and then again in thirteen through eighteen, you can see an offering was required. Acts chapter eighteen, verse eighteen, we see that he's made a, he's made a vow himself. So Paul still remained a good while. He took leave of brethren, sailed to Syria and uh, Priscilla and Aquila with him, and he had he had his hair cut off at uh, Chenchria, for he had taken a vow. And that's what you did when you took the vow. Usually, sometime after uh, after the feast of unleavened bread and Passover, you'd usually uh, in that day they would cut their hair. And some, many today do it in very much the same way as a remembrance, but cut their hair, cut it all off, and then uh, on Shavuot uh, they would go in and th- complete their vow. And the hair growth between that t- time it was it was shaved again. The hair growth between that time was offered up as an offering. It was it was visible? It was visible that they had taken their vow and they had completed their vow. So here we read that he's taken his vow. So Paul himself is a Nazarite during this during this time between Acts chapter eighteen and verse uh, verse eighteen and, and Acts chapter twenty one uh, verse uh, verse twenty nine, uh, and and this is his completion. This is his proof. His proof uh, that he is uh, that he is um, uh, still observant. Uh, what occurs then as he goes in to finish this, to, to, to finish his vow to, and to complete with the men? Acts chapter twenty one verse twenty six. I'll read through verse twenty nine. Then Paul took the men 
And the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification. At which time, that days of purification are that same thing, that, that uh, the time of the vow. At which time, an offering should be made for each one of them. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews uh, from Asia, his seven days of purification, uh, and by the way, also, also would include the uh, um, um, uh, ashes of a red heifer, uh, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. Again, a false accusation. And furthermore, he has brought Jews into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Now, this is a false accusation. Paul did not bring Trophy, uh, Trophimus in to the temple. But the point is, what they are saying is, he is defiling this place by bringing Gentiles in. This very thing, this very calling that Paul had as an ambassador to the Gentiles is being used against him. It's being used against him. They're... they're, they're very concerned that he's defiling the holy place. Paul is going to be persecuted. Now he's going to be put in chains. He's going to be persecuted for this very calling that God had called him. As Yeshua told him on the road to Damascus that he would suffer many things. He says, his calling, I will send you to the Gentiles. For this is he's going to suffer many things. Paul, the pious, observant, Shemaiite, is going to suffer many things. He remains observant. He remains pious. And yet, in rejecting the 18 measures, and rejecting the notion that a Gentile uh, must uh, convert through ritual conversion, through circumcision, to, the, uh, to Judaism, in order to have a place in the world to come, because he opposes those things, he's going to be persecuted. He's going to be persecuted by those within the way, uh, the followers of Yeshua, he's going to be persecuted by those outside the way. And we're going to see when we get into the book of Galatians next week uh, that, his, that this persecution is something that he bore in his body. That he bore in his body the marks of this persecution. How deep was his love, not only for the Jewish people, but for the ones that God had called into the covenant, into the covenant community, into Israel, those Gentiles who were turning to the one true God. Paul's commitment to the Jew and to the Gentile were proof of his love and his commitment to Yeshua. Go to John chapter 17, verse 21. This is Yeshua's heart. This is what he says to us. He speaks to his disciples and speaking through to them, he speaks to us. That they all may be one. Speaking of disciples. That they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. How will the world believe that Messiah was sent by the Almighty? How will they believe? Why will they believe? Because we're one. We're not Jew and Gentile. We're not Jews, Jews at the Bema and the Gentiles at the window as we see in some Messianic congregations. And in, in, and in the uh, traditional Christian uh, church, where we see uh, Jews are only permitted in as long as they renounce their Judaism and become and convert to Christianity, where they, no, where they, where they must declare, I'm no longer under the law, or I'm no longer a follower of, 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 of the teachings of Moses. Uh, those, you know, th- this division that occurred 
uh, in the second century. This division, this two peoples, uh, uh, both on the side of Judaism and on the side of Christianity, this two peoples, this is not, this is not the oneness that God requires. This is not the oneness that God demands as, of his people. Go to Ephesians uh, 2 again. In verse 11 through 14. Remember therefore that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called in circumcision by what is called the circumcision made in flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For he himself is our peace. He's our peace offering. Who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. What's the middle wall of separation? It's things like the 18 measures. It's things like ritual conversion. Those are the, those are the things those are the things that, uh, that were nailed, uh, nailed to the cross. That were abolished. Man-made restrictions. The theme of Acts, uh, I hope that you uh, has, have seen the theme of Acts, is that of the final redemption, as we see in Isaiah chapter 2. And I hope also that we, uh, that we have seen that, that the necessity for Gentiles to be a part for the, for the Messianic age. And, and that the resistance to Gentile inclusion is the first, is, 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 the, is the fight first within the followers of Yeshua and also with Judaism at large. Within the book of Acts, we see a fight going on. There's a, there's a, there's a competition. There's a, there's, there's a dispute. And it is whether Gentiles are common, unclean, or whether Gentiles, as, as, as we read in, in, in Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles are uh, are considered a part. Those who have turned to God and those who have uh, rejected the ways of idolatry that have uh, come to Him and speak uh, and, and who live lives of, of righteousness. Uh, those who, who have trusted in Messiah, whether they should be included. Are they Israel? Or are they simply something else? Are they Israel? Or are they a new thing? A new body? A new people? Now the stage has been set. We've, we've done our homework. We've, uh, we've established some language. Uh, we've, we've filled our glossary up with terms and a recognition in the, of the hist- history in the first century. So that when we begin in the next lesson, reading in Galatians chapter 1, hopefully we'll be able to see uh, the marvelous uh, job that Paul did in, in writing down uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the heart of God, the recognition uh, of, of the things that are important for us to hear. Uh, may we, as a people, uh, not turn our ears, uh, not turn deaf ears towards God, but we would have our ears circumcised that we may hear and understand and obey and believe Him in all that He said. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you have called us into a relationship with you. That through the, through the work of Messiah and him alone have we been joined to the people of God. That as Israel, 
and the Israel of God, we stand before you recognizing that it is not through our own deeds, not through our own works, not through ritual conversion, not through anything that we or anyone else can do, except for the work of Messiah, we can stand before you righteous. We thank you for your revealed word. We thank you for the righteousness that you revealed from everlasting to everlasting. We thank you for all these things, and we say in our name of our Master Yeshua, uh, Amen. This is the prayer from uh, Kedusha Hayom, from the Sabbath Mincha prayers. You are one, and your name is one, and who is like your people Israel, one nation on earth. Amen.